The Nation State of Play podcast is produced by IBC Media in San Diego, California. Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. Well, Mark, thanks so much for being here today. We really appreciate the time. Thank you for having me, Brian. It's, it's an honor, actually. All right. Well, I, I want to start with the issue of background checks, because th- this is this perennial frustrating issue where you know, we have a sort of patchwork of state laws on this topic, but it really seems to need some federal uniformity. So can you give us the update on where this currently stands in D.C. and it, whether there's any, any chance of making progress on it during this Congress? Yeah, you know, that's a good question, Brian. You know, and, it, and it's interesting, if you go back to our history with Sandy Hook Promise, that was really the first thing that we uh, we set out to work on. Uh, it was kind of at the time, you know, I mean, this was just months after, you know, the, the horrible tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School. My seven-year-old son, Daniel, was shot to death in his first grade classroom. And we all we knew that we wanted to do was try to address this. We wanted to prevent other families from having to live this pain. And, you know, through through our our research through our pain, through our, our grief, you know, we, we learned uh, that, that there is this loophole in the federal background check system uh, and that closing that loophole uh, is something that the Americans, American citizens want to see. Uh, and that, that the numbers of Americans have wanted to see that loophole closed, Brian, has, has kind of fil- floated around in the mid to upper 90% range from, for as long as I can remember. And you think of anything else that 95, 97% of Americans want to see done and can, can come together on and can unify on. Uh, there really isn't anything. I, I don't even think ice cream enjoys that kind of uh, broad popular support. Definitely uh, not. Those are fierce debates, actually, on, on ice cream flavor. So, so yeah, yeah no, it's, of course. Yeah, the, but uh, point taken. You know, so and and uh, to be honest, you know, I was completely a neophyte and and shamefully so. You know, I was uh, a, a professional musician raising my three children and uh, woefully not engaged in American politics. Uh, I knew nothing about gun culture in America, uh, and and having been held up at gunpoint uh, with with my then fiance, um, she grew up in the Bronx. I grew up in Yonkers, New York. We've both been exposed to gun violence in our in our. Uh, in our past and, um, you know, and would watch the news like everyone else and just go on about our day and, and, and not think that uh, we need to get involved until the absolute worst pos- possible tragedy, uh, uh, you know, befell my family. And, and, and only then did we, we realize this is not gonna fix itself and that we had to do something. And, and so we did, we, when, when um, the federal government was looking to, uh, to pass the mansion to me um, uh, bill, which was basically, sort of closing the loophole in the in the in the background check system and I, I i didn't know anything about that i already figured i already would have assumed that uh, every firearm purchase or transfer would have to be accompanied by a comprehensive background check uh, it just made sense to me and and then to learn uh that i don't know something like 40 percent of firearm sales and transfers would go on legally without the background check uh, so we did a lot of studying we did a lot of research we learned about this uh, and when uh, Senators mentioned it to him, he wanted to propose this, this, this bill. We thought, oh, this is great. Everybody wants to do it. It makes sense. It's nothing new. It's, uh, it's just you know, improving on existing legislation, existing legislation, which has passed constitutional muster under strict scrutiny, by the way. Um, everyone you know, 
knows that when they go to a gun store, they're probably going to have to have a background check. And that's the way that goes. Uh, knowing that there are online sales, there are certain tables at some gun shows and even some gun stores will still sell firearms without a background check uh, was horrifying. Uh, and to learn that it was, you know, in actual high numbers. So we thought this made good sense. We knew that the American people wanted to see it happen. We advocated for it. We spoke with more than half the United Senate and, and encouraged them to do the right thing. And then to see that fail uh, was, was eye-opening. And, and to try to comprehend that, it's, that it failed with all of that support, with 95, 98% <laughs> support, like how, how does that happen? And, and so that was really kind of a catalyst for a moment for us with our organization, Sandy for Promise, to rethink this and, and, and to look at, at this in a different way and to come up with some uh, uh, other ways that we could prevent families from having to live this pain. And we have done that, but we've never walked away from, from um, supporting uh, a universal background check uh, law at the, at the federal level. So here we are uh, at, at coming up on 10 years since the tragedy at Sandy Hook and the, the ensuing push to uh, close the loophole in our federal background check system. And we still haven't done it. And it's shameful, it's embarrassing, and, and it should be unacceptable. Um, you know, we've been, we've been hard at work at this. We, we have also uh, developed wonderful um, know the science prevention programs that we give to schools and communities at no cost. And we do prevent um, tragedies. We've prevented school shootings and, and, and many, many suicides with our our free programs that we bring to schools across the country, but we still advocate for sensible, smart firearm policies and regulations in this country, like the federal background check. Um, you know, um, Senator Mark Kelly uh, shared a wonderful analogy that I think is relatable to folks who are, are just learning about this. And and his 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 analogy is that if you consider going on an airplane trip, you have to. You have to go through the airport and you have to go through the TSA security checkpoint. And you have to be, go through the machine and all of that and everything has to be examined and looked at. But what if there was another line where people would just come right in off the street and get right on the airplane? No check, nothing. And, and, and you know, that's how 40% of firearm sales are happening in this country. And, it is, and it's legal. You know, you go on these, uh, uh, these internet sites like Arms List uh, and you can, you can broker a, a deal and buy uh, an AR-15 out of the trunk of somebody's car uh, with cash in hand, and you don't even have to give your name. And that's a legal transfer. It's so incredible. it's incredible. And, you know, the, and the folks say, mm -hmm. oh, we don't need any more laws. This isn't a, another law. This is just the same one that we've been using for decades that has prevented many, many tragedies and many, many people from dying with firearms by preventing sales to folks who should not have them. Uh, terrorists. Terrorists know that it's easy to get guns in America, and they exploit that um, and they have been for years. So it's, it's just something that needs to happen. It's not gonna be the end all be all. No one law is gonna solve our gun violence epidemic. No number of laws will solve our gun violence epidemic, but it will save many lives. And, and that, should be, that should be all it needs. That should be all it takes. You know, I think that's so well said. This is, this is an area where I think the right does um, an effective job of, of sort of pitting uh, any progress versus perfection on this issue you know you're, you're we constantly hear this argument of like you know well th this law is not going to solve the problem and, and as and as you've said you know um pro progress comes in in fits and starts i worked on president obama's campaign he used to say better is better um which, which sound obvious but, but i feel like we disregard that logic in politics too much but you, you said a few things that i want to unpack um 
first of all, what do other countries do on this? Um, be, because because you, you referenced that it's it, people know it's easy to buy guns in America. What, what do we what do we see from uh, sort of our allies in other parts of the world on this topic? You know, I I don't I can't I can't speak to to specifics on on firearm acquisition policy in other countries. That other than I do know that most of the rest of the world looks at United States and, and our and our worsening gun violence epidemic um, uh, with horror. And how are we unable to uh, address this? And there are so many solutions available to us that we are not implementing. Um, and, and so I know that that's a perception from around the world. Um, I, I I you know I, I I'm sorry that I don't have uh, data uh, to to speak to uh, to policies in other countries. I'm I'm just trying to keep up with. Yeah, with, no, it's it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. I mean, really, I, because every state has a different version, and every every you know, it's it's and and there are different little provisions and nuances, and it's and it's you know, I I don't even have the fluency that I need in this country. So, um, and and you know, so a lot of this falls to the states in, in the absence of any robust, consistent. Um, federal legislation or regulation, a lot of this falls to state laws and those are variable and one state has something and another state doesn't. And then things are implemented, you know, in a neighboring state that don't, you know, it's just, it, it, it can make it, it can make it very confusing. And it also makes it uh, a lot of these laws ineffective. People love to point to Chicago. It has strong gun laws in the city, but most of the crime guns in, in Chicago, and this is, this is data-driven research that uh, those guns are coming from neighboring states with lax gun laws. So it, there, there needs to be, you know, universal background checks at the federal level. It's, it's in the name universal, you know, it needs to be universal. Um, and, and so much of this, we could, we could, uh, similar to, to President Obama's, you know, better is better. And that's very true. And, and there is so much to that, you know, it sounds simple and, and obvious, but it really is. And another one similar to that is, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the, of the good. So, okay. So, you know, universal background checks at the federal level aren't going to prevent every single firearm tragedy. Okay, we know that, but they will prevent many, and it won't be any any imposition on anyone's rights to own a firearm. If if you you know, a lot of this is not these are not Second Amendment issues. You know, this is not new legislation. This isn't infringing on anyone's constitutional right to own a firearm, uh, unless you are deemed a danger to yourself or others. Um, and, and you know, and and no law no constitutional um, right is absolute and all of our rights come with responsibilities and, and the second amendment is no different. So, so I wanna go back to something you said about the 90% and this is, this is a relevant question I think for all of these, um, these logical policies you're advocating for. What is your diagnosis, what is your organization's view on how it is possible that some of these common sense measures can have 90% support and yet not pass the Senate. Just, just as a literal matter, why do you think that disconnect can happen in Washington? Uh, I, 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 think there's, I think there's power and money involved, Brian. And I think that uh, the, our elected leaders are, are, are not voting, um, voting, their votes don't reflect the will of, of their constituents, their constituents who elected them. Uh, and and whose whose number one priority should be uh, the well-being of those constituents. And and unfortunately, there are other forces at work that are influencing our legislators to vote um, vote differently than their constituents want them to. And so then it comes back to numbers, engagement, 
uh, and advocacy. And, and so that's when it's time to use your vote um, to, to, to elect somebody who will vote um, for your, for your well being and for what you're asking for. Um, and also to let them know, you know, you should, you should thank the legislators who are voting in your favor, who vote for your well being, and you should also let the ones who are not know that as well. And I've spoken with my fair share of legislators and they do, they do get those messages and they do hear those calls and those emails and read those letters. And so enough of them, if, if enough people uh, are consistently uh, active uh, and insisting that their legislators act on their best behalf, then I think we can see the, the change that we're looking to see. Do you know if there's been any discussion in the Senate about waiving the filibuster rules or overriding the filibuster rules to help get this back? Because I assume you think you have 51 votes. You've got Manchin. Um, obviously, it's, it would be close. But I, I, is it fair to say you think you'd have yeah, 50 votes plus plus uh, the vice president breaking the tie if it would actually come to a vote? You know, and I'm not even sure. I'm, I couldn't even speculate on who we have because it really depends on whose bill it is and whose sure. package it is and what they're, who's got what at stake. And it's it's really unfortunate that there are uh, there are egos and agendas um, in, in getting in the way uh, of really just kind of moving forward and doing the right thing. You know, when the Mansion Toomey bill was on the was on the floor, we we needed you know we needed closure. We needed to we needed sixty, and we got more than half, but we didn't get enough to uh, to pass that. So uh, that's a tough one. You know that that is a tough one, and it and it's really it's really just kind of shameful that that we have to we have to split these hairs. With something like this, that's just a should be low hanging fruit, um, and and you know, folks who are traditionally um, uh, not in favor of of uh, gun violence prevention policies would should and could messages like, I am breaking from my party line, and I'm doing the right thing for my constituents because it's the right thing and it will save lives. Can you imagine they could? There would be a, a talking points for days. So you could look like a hero. Right. Um, and it and just it never it never fails to amaze me how folks don't just see that. I mean, they could just, you know, come to the middle and and win all kinds of favor and 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 it would be genuine and transparent. And and I think it would be a, a winning move, but they don't seem to see it that way. Not all of them. So, so let me ask you about extreme risk protection orders. I think this is something not is widely understood. So can you just give us an overview of, kind of what these are and, and what happens um, both at the state level and the federal level where you're trying to get them passed? Right, and, and it's pretty similar, uh, the state level and the federal level, it just seems to happen. Uh, we're able to do it at the, at the state level easier because um, there's less stuff in the way. Uh, I think there's 19 states that now have some version of the extreme risk protection order and what that is, and it's really a perfect companion piece for for one, for one of our know the signs trainings uh, that we teach kids in Sandy Hook Promise, which is basically there are warning signs before somebody um, causes violence to someone else or harms themselves. It doesn't happen in a vacuum and people don't snap overnight. Uh, there are almost always uh, warning signs, uh, signs and signals leading up to that. Uh, and so this is a very, very similar uh, in, in the extreme risk protection order. And uh, when folks in the home observe um, behaviors that present a clear and present danger to the individual or the family members in that home. And there are, they have access to firearms. <clears throat> the extreme risk protection order uh, uh, allows a family member to petition police or the courts or the police can petition the courts 
and, and to, to make a, an adjudication that this person is in fact uh, a clear and present danger to themselves mm -hmm. and or others, uh, that they can then temporarily, I'll say that again, temporarily separate that person from those firearms. Those firearms can be safely stored somewhere, somewhere else until this person is out of this crisis, until they can get the help that they need and that they are then, they can then, um, they can then petition the court to receive their firearms back again once they demonstrate that they are no longer in crisis and that they are safe. So it's a temporary measure to remove uh, deadly force from somebody who is suffering an emerging mental health crisis or something else similar to that. But we like to call it, um, it's C-A-R-R -R or uh, crisis aversion and rights retention. So basically uh, it prevents a horrible act from happening, a suicide or a homicide or something else, uh, which would then of course um, remove that person's rights one way or the other to own that firearm. Uh, so we call it rights retention because uh, if you get, if you make an intervention, get somebody the help that they need, they don't have access to those firearms until they're well, uh, and then they get them back. So it's crisis aversion and rights retention. And that's what we're working on that actually in Kentucky right now. Uh, Kentucky is doing, has been doing a wonderful job uh, drafting bipartisan legislation with bipartisan support in Kentucky um, to, to prevent these tragedies from happening and to not, you know, not cause somebody to lose their right to own a firearm forever. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it's really, it really works. It really works well. It saves lives and it does, you know, uh, re retain folks rights to own a firearm. So, um, we need to see this, uh, you know, we're working on it in Kentucky and some other States, but, you know, we've been also working with the coalition to stop gun violence, um, to pass federal, a federal funding uh, appropriations process, uh, to basically, uh, incentivize, um, States to enact, uh, an extremist protection order. Uh, within the carrot of, of federal funding to be available to them when they do this. So Please. there are a couple of ways to do this and, and we're working on it at the state level and at the federal level. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's evidence-based um, life-saving prevention is all it really is. So, so that's the way that federal legislation work is there wouldn't be a federal process per se. This would always be a state process, but there would be federal financial support for states that choose to do it. Is that right? It's exactly what we're, we're working with, you know, with Coalition Stop Gun Violence to do a federal funding uh, in the upcoming federal appropriations process to support this. But, um, you know, and, and as, as with any legislation, really, Brian, uh, it's only as good as the education and the training that goes with it. You know, there are states that have this on the books and, and they don't really, they don't know it. Folks don't know they have it. Even law enforcement might not know that they have this. So really there needs to be funding and there needs to be a robust uh, campaign of education and awareness. So people know that they have this valuable tool, that there are procedures and protocols in place so that it won't be abused and, and that, that it'll, it'll work as it should and it will save lives. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, a wonderful tool. It does not take people's rights away. Uh, it's proven prevention and it, and it works. Uh, ballpark, how many states have these? Do you know? Uh, I want to say, <clears throat> I think 19. Uh, also, um, okay. Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, has also passed a version of that as well. Yeah. Right. Um, and obviously no constitutional issues that you're aware of associated with this, right? No. And it's, you know, and it's all like, again, it's in the messaging, it's in the training, it's in how it's communicated. Uh, because, you know, opponents will... Will scare people and saying, "Oh, the cops! You know, if if uh, if a spouse is angry at another at their, at their at their partner, they can call the police and say, 'I'm I'm I'm in danger. Take their guns away.' 
you know, there has to be a due process, right? So there, there, there has to be a due process to, to, to evaluate this person and, and ensure that yes, they are uh, potentially a danger to themselves or others. Uh, and, and then to affect that transfer and that storage of firearms until this person is out of danger. Uh, and then there has to be a due process for this person to petition um, to have their firearms returned to them. And of course they would have to prove that they are uh, stable and healthy and able to, um, to have uh, possession of deadly force. Uh, so, so there is a process um, and, it, and it has to be, you know, there, has a, there are procedures that will have to be followed. It's not just, you know, somebody calls from a house and says, come take the guns away. There has to be a process. Uh, and, and that has to be communicated. It has to be, um, it has to be, you know, folks have to be trained and have to understand what this is and how it works uh, for it to work properly. And, and as with any legislation, really, uh, it's, a, it's only as good as, as folks who know how to use it. So because you're seeking a federal appropriation on this, does this mean this is one of these rare areas where we actually might be able to get federal action this time? Because that's presumably not subject to the filibuster. That, that presumably that would be, be part of some sort of budget reconciliation. Is that, is that the way you're thinking about this? Right, exactly. It's kind of it's kind of a workaround um, to to incentivize, really. It's just an right. incentive. You know. Great. Uh, well, that's that's promising that 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 seems like it's got real potential for this one. So um, I want to ask you about one of the most maddening ones of all, which is the high capacity magazine limits issue. Can, can you kind of give us an overview of, of where this stands at the states and then what we're trying to accomplish at the federal level? Yeah, there's really not a whole lot of, uh, you know, some states, you know, some states, Brian, and I don't know which states, some mm -hmm. states have what's called a fair game law. And what that means is that hunters are limited to the number of rounds that they can put in their firearm when they're hunting to give the wildlife a, 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 a fair chance. Um, and I, I'm laughing because it's ludicrous and it's not funny. Um, you know, uh, there, there, are, there are 50, 100 round, you know, magazines and drums that, that civilians can put in uh, an assault rifle or, or another semi-automatic weapon. Um, and I, I, nobody really can, nobody has given a, um, any kind of a cogent, uh, scenario that, that illustrates why a civilian would need that, uh, that kind of firepower. Uh, what, what we do know is, is that in, in, in our case, in Sandy Hook, where my little Daniel was a student, you know, that shooter fired 154 bullets in four minutes, uh, with an AR, uh, 15 that he had. I think um, connected 30 round magazines together. Uh, and, you know, he, he took the lives of six educators and 20 first graders in four minutes uh, using that. You know, and we know stories, there are stories upon stories where uh, when a mass shooter stops to reload, it's an opportunity for folks to intervene and to stop them. And that has happened. Yeah. Unarmed civilians have stopped a mass shooter while they stopped, while they paused to reload. So that every time that, that a, a mass shooter has to switch out that magazine and reload, it's an opportunity for, for people to, to survive, for them to stop the shooter. When, when the shooter in Sandy Hook was, was reloading, you know, students in the other classroom were able to escape. So there's plenty of evidence that, um, there's no evidence to support why anyone needs that. Um, and there's plenty of evidence uh, supporting why, why it makes good sense to, to have a maximum capacity, maybe 10, how about 10? 10, 10 rounds, I think you can do anything you need to do. You can protect your home if that's what you need to do or want to do. You can do your hunting, um, you can do your target shooting. There's really no other practical application to have more than that. This is the example I always like to tease out the sort of silly constitutional arguments on this. Um, uh, you know, uh, when the founders were drafting the constitution, regardless of whether 
what you think the Second Amendment actually means. The, the fact is, um, the guns that they knew of were muskets, which took, which had one bullet, is my understanding, yep. and took uh, something like 45 seconds to reload that, that one bullet. Mm -hmm. uh, so a uh, lot, lot, lot of time to um, either maybe calm down or, as you say, to have an intervening act, but certainly a lot less damage that, that can be inflicted. Uh, th this, this is where I think the constitutional stuff kind of gets crazy. W what is... What is your understanding of the constitutional status of, I know you're not a constitutional lawyer, I don't, I don't think you are in your spare time anyway, but, but what is your understanding of the constitutional status of these capacity limits as, they, as it currently has been tested in the Supreme Court? It's, it's my understanding, Brian, is that, <laughs> is, that, is that, you know, magazine capacity is not addressed in the Constitution. Yeah, they didn't know what, um, they didn't know it, what wasn't a was. Thing. It wasn't yeah. a thing when it was written. It was, there was one bullet, a gun had a bullet, and, you know, and I don't even know when, when the revolver came in, came into play, but I mean, it's just, um, you know, if, if you want to, I mean, constitutional scholars uh, disagree on, you know, because the placement of commas, like, what is this actually, what was their actual intent? Uh, and really back then it was in the absence of a standing army. We have that now. And, you know, we could debate that part of this, you know, the, the opponents seem to only remember the shall not be infringed part. Um, you know, they seem to, ignore the well-regulated militia part yeah uh, but but as far as i i don't see how um a magazine limit uh falls uh, under the framework of the of the second amendment in any way uh and you know we have made you know antonin scalia has made adjustments to the to the second amendment um where he even said you know you know this should not carry to to anyone to carry any firearm that they want in any place whatsoever for any means you know um, like we said before, every, all rights uh, uh, have responsibilities and no right is absolute, uh, this not being an exception. So I, 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 can't, I can't find anything in the Second Amendment that addresses um, the number of bullets that you, know, you can or can't have. And, and I think that, that, that we, are, we are on our own here and we have, to make a, we have to make a call based on what we know. And what we know is that high capacity magazines leads to increased lethality and that um, smaller um, magazine capacity leads leads to more opportunities uh, for for survivors uh, to escape or intervene. I mean, I, I just to sort of like tease this out logically, where where would that logic stop? As you said, even Scalia has said there's a limit to it somewhere. I mean, what what I would say to our, our sort of um, absolutist second amendment friends is like, could you could you keep a tank in your front yard? You know, could you keep a biological weapon in your front yard? Is, do, do you think the, the second amendment protects that, right? I mean, obviously the founders couldn't contemplate modern warfare and and didn't um, contemplate with that with any level of specificity. Um, they simply said a well-regulated militia, which literally uses the word regulation. So when, when you talk to, I mean, because you've been in these conversations with senators who are going to vote against you on this. I'm sure you've had these maddening conversations. What do those sound like? Can you take us in that room a little bit? Like, like when you when you have when you say that to a, a Republican senator, what what do they say? Well, um, Brian, usually one one of two things happens when when you get really into unpacking this and, and and examining this for what it is and how it applies to modern society against this epidemic of of shooting that we see every day in this country. 
uh, one of two things happens. One, they suddenly have a, an, an, another appointment and leave. Right. Or, or they say, oh, no, I support X bill, whatever it is, background checks, magazine limits, whatever it is, but just not this one. I'd like to maybe see a different language, you know, that, that did something else. And those are one of the, one of the usual, or, or it's, you know, you know, yeah, you know, I don't know enough about this to, to comment on it. I'll have to learn more, you know? So there's, it's just usually some kind of a pivot or, or, a you know, or a running away. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I did have one, I did have one legislator say that uh, I, I know that it makes sense. And this legislator told my son that, they believed that that a universal background check bill would save lives, uh, but that they wouldn't be able to vote for it um, because uh, because their constituents don't understand it and uh, and you know wouldn't wouldn't reelect them. <laughs> so they were just very very open and honest about like I'm gonna I'm gonna say no and let more people die because I want to wow. be reelected. So I did have somebody at least honestly say that to me. You know that that was a that was a once that was a one and only, but um. Uh, yeah, I've I've seen uh, lots of lots of you know changing the subject and pivoting and obfuscation. I just you know it's it's I, I used I used to kind of get baffled by it. Like why wait how are we talking about something else now? Like what about this? Like what about isms? And you know and now now I'm a little now I'm kind of a little hip to that. I've I've kind of done this enough where I can kind of pull them back and and kind of put them in the hot seat. And that's a, that's usually when their staffer comes in with a sticky note and says it's time for your next meeting. Time for your next call. Yeah. Um, what works from a communications point of view? You just mentioned like, here's a legislator saying my constituents don't understand this. I'm, I'm sure you're, you're doing a lot of messaging in districts exactly like that to try to change people's minds. What works and, and what doesn't work that, that you've learned over these years? Well, you know, we've really um, made an effort to be nonpartisan, Brian, or, or bipartisan, I guess. We, we really just want to save lives. And that's what we do. We, we, uh, we have found uh, our own lean in the highway in this space. And we work a lot with mental health. We, lot, we work a lot with school safety. Um, our training programs address social isolation and uh, teaching students how to know the signs of uh, someone who's going to hurt themselves or somebody else, and then connecting them to the help that they need before it becomes a tragedy. So we really work uh, in, in, in the purest essence of prevention. Uh, and it's been tremendously successful. Like I said, we give these programs away to the schools, uh, train the students, and we sustain the programs. We don't just throw it over the wall. We stay with the schools. We make sure that this is implemented and built into the culture and the fabric of the school so that students look out for one another. They're more communicative. They're, they're more likely to stand up for one another and connect somebody to a trusted adult who can get them the help that they need uh, before it becomes something more serious. And it, it, it works wonderfully. The students, um, they, they do take it seriously. They do act immediately. And we have prevented school shootings, many of them. We've prevented many, many suicides. Uh, and so, so we really don't want to let, you know, partisan politics get in the way of saving lives because that's at the end of the day, what we're here to do. We're here to prevent other families from having to live this pain. We have learned through our research that most of these fatalities and acts of violence are preventable when folks know the warning signs and take those next steps to connect somebody to help. And that's really what we're doing. So uh, along with that, we know that policy has to happen. We know that, that, that smart, responsible, constitutional firearm regulations are necessary, will save lives and will not infringe on anybody's rights. Um, but until that happens, and we're gonna continue to work on that, we are continuing to save lives with our Know the Science programs. So, so that, you know, I think that's interesting about the, the point about children and teens understanding this differently. There are some 
issues in politics where um, we, we kind of grow into progress, right? I mean, I sort of think of the gay rights movement in, in some ways as, as the beneficiary of this is, um, you know, as a certain generation got older, got to voting age, they're like, guys, what are we talking about here? Like, you know, we, we, we became much more open-minded and it had a really big impact on our politics. Do you have any hope that this issue could follow a similar path as children who have grown up living with gun violence, do drills with getting under their desk and everything else, that overall public opinion could change as younger generations who've lived through this become the ones in charge? Yeah, actually, absolutely. I mean, and it's, and it's just, it's horrifying, Brian, that, you know, I, I heard somebody coin the phrase, you know, the lockdown generation, and, and, and that's what this is. And, you know, it, it has become, it has become just, you know, a thing that students have to live with, you know, and they shouldn't have to. It's, it's just, it's, <clears throat> it's heartbreaking that our students in this country have to live with the, the, the constant specter of the possibility of a school shooter and they're, you know, hunting them in their, in their, in their elementary school, their middle school. It's just, it's just unacceptable, <clears throat> excuse me. And we need to walk this back. We need to get everyone involved in this. This has to be a priority issue in, in whatever that means to you. Um, donate uh, time or, or, or dollars to, a, to an organization, uh, call your Congress people and uh, insist that they take this up as the number one issue. If enough people do all that, we can, we can definitely start to pull this back. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, um, you know, first of all, suicide in, in young pe people is, uh, is, is an epidemic and it, it's, it's just, it's increasing dramatically. And we're seeing this from our crisis center. We have a, a 24 hour a day crisis center staffed with trained professionals and they're getting these calls and they're, they're reporting that um, the uptick in life safety calls from kids uh, has dramatically increased. And, you know, and guns are the leading cause of death for kids under 19 right now. And suicide is the second leading cause with firearms being the most lethal tool. So it all connects. Um, and so, so we, we are in the midst of a youth suicide epidemic right now. And, and that's why we are training on, on, you know, we are doing suicide awareness trainings uh, for students because it's, it's an epidemic and it's getting worse. Um, and and to, to your point about the, 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 shoot, the shooter drills, the active shooter drills, th those simulations are absolutely fundamentally inherently traumatizing mm -hmm. there is there is no such thing as a trauma-informed way to mimic a mass shooting there just isn't it's traumatizing uh and so we're we are working also um you know with safety guidelines uh for with students mental well-being in 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 mind uh so whether it's legislative or regulatory or rulemaking strategies whatever it takes uh, we need to redefine what school safety means and, and, that, and that these active shooter simulations cannot be the way forward because it's horrifying and traumatizing. And again, points to the importance of actual prevention. So, so we can not have to live where we have to be training for this, but we also have to train differently. We can't do these active simulations with, with mock blood and you know, sounds of guns going off in the hallways uh, or students are, are cowering under their desks. It, it, it's, it's, just, it's just not, healthy. Uh, and so that's, that's a whole other thing. And the youth voice is really, to your point, is, is so critical and so important right now. Um, you know, lawmakers need to hear from their students, from the students in, in you know, even if you're not voting age, um, they, they are still your constituents and, and your, their safety and well-being is still under your purview. 
and and so you know legislators at the state and federal level need to listen to uh, need to listen to students in in middle middle school and high school. Um, it, it's it's really critical. Uh, well said, and it's a great segue. So if people want to get involved, you mentioned a few ways there briefly, but if they want to help your organization get involved in your work, where should they go? How can they find more information? Yeah, so well, I mean, you can find at, at uh, sandyhoodpromise.org. We, we have uh, sandyhoodpromise.org. Come to our website. We have everything there. Our school safety principles, our active shooter guidelines, um, all of our state and federal work, all of our programs, all of the ways that you can connect with us, all the ways you can help us. We are, you know, we are a nonprofit organization. We're bringing life-saving trainings to students across the country. That takes a lot of help. It takes a lot of resources. Um, we, we have something that works. It resonates with the students. And in the meantime, we're building a culture of students who are more connected, more compassionate, more likely to be upstanders for their peers. And so that takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of uh, commitment and a lot of resources. So we need all the help we can get. Um, and, and help us bring these students uh, the, the trainings that they need and um, build our safe promise clubs in schools across the country. And over time, as we grow to scale, generation, you know, class after class, generation after generation, we will definitely have a positive impact on the culture and bring this epidemic of shootings and violence and suicides down and bring the, the uh, compassion and the connection up because we're seeing it happen. We're seeing it happen in microcosms across the country. So over time at scale, it's it's a good thing. But uh, we need folks to uh, to step up and and do do stuff in their communities and in their schools and in their families and help us do the work that we are doing as well. Well, Mark, uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. Thanks for taking um, your horrible tragedy and using that experience to help prevent the same to countless other families. Um, we, uh, it's an honor to have you on the show and we will help spread the word however we can. So thank you for making the time. Thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate uh, the, the opportunity and um, hopefully your listeners will, uh, will reach out to us. All right, we'll make sure we put all those links in the show notes. Um, thank Mark Barden, Sandy Hook Promise. We invite you to share story ideas, comments, and questions. Find us at NeptuneOps.com or on Twitter at at NationStateOfP1. Again, that's at NationStateOfP and then the number one. Follow us and subscribe to listen to all of our episodes as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California policy. The Nation State of Play podcast is produced by IBC Media in San Diego, California. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and thank you for listening. Do you have a business, nonprofit, or campaign that needs to break through the communications clutter? For more than 10 years, IVC Media has developed a suite of digital tools, data sets, and creative techniques to help corporate, government, and nonprofit organizations deliver authentic, innovative, and effective communications. Our teams in San Diego and Tijuana can help you overcome the most challenging communications project in any language or location. Visit us today at IVC.media.